This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. I'm John Dunn. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Best Friends Podcast. We've had some very nice emails as of late letting us know how we're doing, and it appears some of you are enjoying the podcast. We appreciate that. We'd love to hear from you anytime. Maybe you want to suggest a topic or a guest. Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. That's podcast at bestfriends.org. And the website, if you go to bestfriends.org slash podcast, you'll see a list of all the episodes. And on each of the episode pages, we put all the links to information we talk about, and you can see a bio and a photo for the guests of that episode. It sometimes helps to put a face to a name, although I'm not sure that I can say that's true for me. So seek out my photo with caution. Again, that's bestfriends.org slash podcast. We came across a story recently. Out in Los Angeles, there's a lawsuit. A housing equality organization filed the suit against a woman. She's got some profile because she's an Instagram influencer. She runs a restaurant and she also operates an animal rescue organization. I wanna be clear and say that we know nobody involved in this. This is not us saying who's right or who's wrong. But the lawsuit alleges that a couple took a support dog from an unhoused man. They then surrendered the dog to the rescue. As is the case with this story and the countless others like it, you know, it comes down to a he said, she said situation. Allegations of theft are met with claims of abuse. The organization representing the owner says the dog was a support animal and that the houseless man had bought a wheelchair for the dog last year when she became paralyzed, a sign they say that he was a loving, caring pet owner. The rescuer says she had to spend thousands in veterinary bills to deal with what she said were life-threatening issues. Who's right and who's wrong, the courts will ultimately decide. But these stories, these cases for us, bring up this underlying question of worthiness. What qualifies someone to have an animal in their lives? Is it a roof over your head? Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this. If you believe this man, a houseless man, has a right to have this support dog in his life and the dog needed medical attention, which it sounds like she did, then the rescuer should simply use the money raised online to help the dog and reunite them. Now, another person may say, no way, a man living on the streets definitely should not own a dog. It's not a place for a dog and he cannot provide the care she would need over time. It's a standards of care question, responsible pet ownership, and I don't care who you are, your feelings on this will be shaped around your own beliefs that go beyond your love for animals. So we thought, what the hell, let's tackle it. These are complex issues and I'm not sure there's a definitive answer, but as the title of this episode suggests, if we treat all animals as individuals, then should we be doing the same for people? To talk this one through, I sat down with Stacy Coleman, the executive director for Animal Farm Foundation. So Animal Farm Foundation has been around for a long time, actually. It was founded back in the 1980s. The founder and president wanted to do a horse rescue. We're in the middle of horse country, and she wanted to give a place for, to, to retire for the riding school horses and the working horses in the area. And then uh, one day she went to the shelter with her partner to get a dog, to adopt a dog, and they brought themselves a dog home that had the label Pitbull, not realizing that it meant much of anything except she started experiencing discrimination because of the dog and what the dog looks like and because she was the one who had the dog and it upset her and she decided to focus her efforts on helping 
the dogs and their people overcome discrimination. I know the organization has evolved. I was looking at the website preparing for this, Stacey, and I saw uh, the three terms, racism, classism, and ableism. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that those were not on the website way back when. Absolutely. So you said a, an important word that describes our organization, and that is evolve. So we used to have a very pitbull specific mission statement. But one of the things that's important to our organization is that we're always ready to evolve into the organization that needs to make the change that needs to happen instead of keep doing the same thing over and over every year because it's easier or more comfortable or because we've already learned how to do it. So we do evolve often and our current mission statement, which is now maybe a year and a half or so old, is bringing dogs and people together to end discrimination. And that fits right into the work that we've done with uh, the dogs and shelters labeled Pitbull. And we've known all along that discrimination against pit bull dogs is actually discrimination against the people who are most often associated with them or who have them as pets. And that is steeped in discrimination. Uh, the same thing goes for uh, classism. Um, people in targeted communities are, or, or communities that don't have um, the same resources as others are often targeted because of their pet or their dog rather than just coming outright and saying, we're uncomfortable with you in our neighborhood because you have less means than we do. Uh, we also help people with um, who use a service dog fight for their rights for equal access, which is why we have a service dog program that uses shelter dogs to help folks um, have equal access if they require the use of a dog. So I had a bit of a, I don't know, like a duh moment, I guess. Like I was on the website and I saw the phrase, treat people as individuals. So I think as a movement, we've come a very long way when we talk about treating animals as individuals. Um, you know, I work for best friends and I'm biased, obviously, but, you know, I think the Vic Dog case was a really big moment for that, helped shape that. You know, like here we have this group of dogs that came from a dog fighting situation as many had come before them and were just being categorized together as a lump as too dangerous, too dangerous to be in a home environment. And that's just the way it is. That's what happens from dogs from uh, fighting cases. But in that case, it, we changed it. We said, wait a minute, they may all prove to be too dangerous, but let's just take a look and see. And the evolution for treating people as individuals, not just lumping them together in big groups like we did with uh, dogs from fighting cases, all poor people, all people of color, the evolution is happening that we're not doing that, but we still have a ways to go. Right. Absolutely. And um, I, you make a very good point that as far as animal welfare goes, and I, I prefer to call it companion animal welfare, which is what we do when we're talking about dogs and cats at Animal Farm and at Best Friend Sanctuary, you have a wide variety of animals. But for the most part, we're working with shelters and rescue groups, and that would be, it, it would be more clear to say companion animals. I think you make a very good point about the dogs that came from the Michael Vick cruelty case, which is, it was the first moment in time where we were able to look at the dogs as the victims of cruelty perpetuated by an individual rather than lump them all together with the criminals who bite dogs. Stacy, I want to talk about worthiness. Uh, what makes someone worthy of pet ownership? 
you know, if we use adoption as an example, what qualifies someone as worthy to adopt? We often use, or people often use finances as a barometer. So if you don't have the money today to pay this often absurdly high adoption fee, then ergo, you probably won't have money to care for the pet in the long run. But circumstances change. Someone today might be a millionaire, pass that test, but tomorrow you have, I don't know, a bad run on the market. This happens, that happens. And all of a sudden they're in the group that you shouldn't be adopting to. And of course, vice versa. So why do you think we're still struggling with worthiness when, when you say it out loud, it's pretty obvious, a very bad way to look at things? I think, well, first of all, I think it's better than it used to be. I know personally I've come a long way in understanding the importance of being open to all situations and all adopters. I was fortunate enough to have experiences pretty early on in my nonprofit experience back when I was in Indianapolis when I learned about pet owners being discriminated against. But as far as adoptions and sheltering, companion animal sheltering goes, I think it's because we feel that we are responsible for making a decision that keeps an animal safe. And I'm not exactly sure when along the line we decided that we were the gold standard for pet care and how people should be taking care of their pets because there really is no gold standard. I hate to break it to everybody, but your dogs don't care what your couch looks like. They don't care. They don't care if you live in a a mansion or a one-room apartment. They don't care as long as they have their love from you and food and water and whatever sort of enrichment they need. The rest of it doesn't matter to the animals. So for us to look at potential adopters and decide whether or not they're worthy, it's a real uh, uh, practice in, in ego to be able to do that. And this is at the point when I have this conversation with folks who don't necessarily agree with me, this is when they say, yeah, but one time such and such happened. You know, one time, Um, somebody adopted a dog and then we found them that they had been turned out or passed on to another owner or whatever, to which I say, that's one time. How many times did it go right? Should we really be, if we're going to be creating policy and practices based on the one time things go wrong, we will forever be reacting instead of creating change. Breed specific legislation is a great example of a reaction rather than creating change. So breed specific legislation is a response to a fear of a group of dogs because of what they look like. There is no science to support that the way they look is going to predict how they behave. That's been litigated. That's been proven time and time again. So if anybody still has that gut reaction that's purely emotional, or maybe they're thinking out of habit because thought does reflect habit. And with breed specific legislation, it's... It's a really ugly conversation to be this boldly honest about it, but I've lost track of the number of times community leaders have said to me, because they think it's safe because the color of my skin is white, and they think it's safe to say, well, we're not trying to, we don't want to take your dog away. We're not trying to control you, which translates to they're trying to control people who don't look like me is what they really are. And I've got an example here from a a little town in Uh, Not too far from where we are here in the Hudson Valley, Uh, we're very lucky in the state of New York, we have a statewide preemption that disallows any communities from passing breed-specific legislation. You just can't do it. And uh, I had read a newspaper story about this town who was that was thinking about uh, passing an ordinance to ban dogs that they labeled Pitbull from their city limits. So I called and I made an appointment with the mayor and I met with the mayor and the city attorney and a couple of the other um, officials in the town. 
and they were all the same color as I was. So I think they thought it was okay to, to say such things. But as soon as we got started and I went through the things about the dogs or you can't predict behavior, bad behavior based on what a dog looks like, there's a lot that goes into, into whether or not a dog is unsafe. And they said outright, well, we're not really concerned about the dogs. It's the Mexicans. We don't want them hanging around town with their dogs. And if we tell them then they can't have their dogs, then maybe they'll go away. And of course, my response at that moment was I collected my things. I stood up and I said, that's a different kind of hate. And I cannot help you with that. And I will not be associated with that. And if you go forward with filing this lawsuit, we will counter you in court or go forward with pounding, find, uh, passing this legislation will counter you in court. And they never went through with it. They never proposed the legislation. But breed-specific legislation is inevitably steeped in racism and in classism. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the concert, on the conference circuit uh, going and talking to people about the importance of looking at dogs as individuals. And once we were able to make some headway with that, then we start talking about looking at the people who want to adopt these dogs as individuals too. And looking at the people who bring the dogs to the back door because they can no longer care for them as individuals as well. And stop making blanket associations about the people who live with and I'm doing air quotes here, pit bull dogs, because whatever pit bull means is different to everybody. So, but the people who identify as pit bull dog owners or whatever dog shelters identify as being pit bulls. And it's taken a long time, but I think that in shelters now, for almost overwhelmingly so, dogs are treated as individuals. So on their own individual merits, regardless of what they look like, the dog is considered for adoption. I think we still have a ways to go when it comes to the policies we make in shelters. I'm glad I had myself muted there because when you told the story about the local officials who said Mexicans, I let a pretty loud expletive fly. And it's so incredible to me that people would think those things, let alone say them out loud. And, you know, one time I was working on a local ordinance issue and was part of a group of people asked to work together and make some recommendations. And there was a private veterinarian who was part of that who said, I don't think poor people should own pets. So how do we define poor? Even if we could come to an agreement of what is an appropriate level of wealth, you know, as I said before, circumstances change and, you know, who's even checking and how do we, are we going to go round people's pets up? How do we stop them from getting pets in the future? All people deserve to have the same opportunity to have the unconditional love from a pet, the bond that you and I have to think otherwise, like, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Again, I think it's it's improving because there are more programs that go into neighborhoods where there are not veterinarians available or um, at least um, affordable veterinary care or low-cost care or vaccinations available. There are mo more programs that are going in to meet pet owners where they live, recognizing that not everybody has transportation, not everybody has the experience of knowledge or the benefit of of having somebody to teach them what it is like to take care of the pet. And there are some people that wish that they could do better, but they just don't have the resources. So I think we're making improvements because there are more, more programs that go out and reach pet owners. But when I hear things, because I do still hear it too, it's like people who, you know, if you can't, if you can't afford to pay a pet deposit, why should you have a pet? Or, and it's like, well, no, because I, I can never, I'm not, I could never presume to know what's right or wrong for that person in front of me. I can make the best choice I can to make sure that that pet is going to a good home. But for us, what a good home means is probably different than what it means for a dog 
or cat. You know, they just want to go someplace where somebody cares about them. So if somebody doesn't have a job, but they're making it uh, day by day, that is the luckiest pet in the world because their person's with home with them way more than our pets are when we're off working, you know? So we have to look at it from a lot of different perspectives rather than just paint everybody with a broad brush. So our job is very much relationship-based. We know there are neighborhoods that just don't have resources, not enough veterinary options, for example, and we've not done enough to get into those neighborhoods and solve for that, which would create and maintain relationships. So one story I have uh, around this is, and I remember who told me, and it might even be urban legend at this point, but I do think it illustrates the point well. A rescuer is driving through a very low-income, predominantly minority neighborhood in a big city, and they saw a sign, puppies for sale, P-U-P-P-Y apostrophe S. So it was kind of like, oh boy, what's going on here? And there was a woman selling the dogs, struck up a conversation, and the lady said, oh, you know, a couple of them I think are sick, and uh, agreed to give them over so they could get help. And so they, she, you know, took the dogs back to the facility, came back out and said, you know, hey, what else is going on? And the nursing mother came out, was just bald, covered in scars and scabs and asked what happened. And the woman said, oh, well, the dog had fleas. And I asked my neighbor what to do about it. And she said, to get rid of them, you use Lysol. Now, the immediate reaction there is that's abuse and that person shouldn't have a pet. But when you think about it and you step back, it's just a lack of information. She identified an issue, wanted to be a good pet owner and fix it. She just didn't know how to. So, you know, it's like, where's the failure in this? Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that, because since this is just audio, um, when you said that person shouldn't have a pet. I kind of shrugged and I thought. Uh, we don't really know that. We don't know that about the person. We know that the person cared enough about her dog not feeling well that she brought it up to the neighbor and the neighbor offered an, a, sol a solution. It was a terrible solution. But where is it that we've gone wrong in providing pet care for people who have pets that there wasn't a better option for her to go to? Why didn't she trust calling a veterinary office or could she not afford to go to a vet's office? Um, so I wouldn't, I'm glad that you, you finished that up with what, it, what have we done to fail that pet owner? Because I think that's more of the correct question than what has gone wrong in that woman's house. So I want to I want to get into talking about um, redlining because I think that's important. History is important for people in animal welfare or companion animal welfare to look outside their own little sphere um, to understand outside influences. But I want to add a story to um, the one you just told about the, the woman who used Lysol to treat fleas. Uh, it, it's a longer story and for a different podcast, but um, the dog that uh, hopped into my car the one day, Gertie, who is the reason I do what I do and fought so hard in Indianapolis and um, took the job at Animal Farm. Um, so I could do this as a career fight for each specific legislation. Uh, she was uh, in a shelter because when I found her as a stray, I did the, what I thought was the right thing and send her to the shelter because, you know, she wasn't mine and somebody might be looking for her. Uh, but when I called the shelter and said, uh, whatever the dog needs, let me know. If nobody comes for her, let me know. To which they said, no, um, she's a female pit bull that's not spayed. We're going to euthanize her after the seven day hold. And um, a whole process started. And anyway, I wasn't going to let that happen. I wasn't going to send that dog who seemed perfectly lovely to her death because 
I was the one who happened to find her. Anyway, so <laughs> I befriended um, a young man who worked in the kennel at that shelter. And I had fought, been fighting so hard, I was no longer allowed to come into the building because I got an attorney so that I could um, use the attorney to get the dog out should it come to that. So they looked at me as, as being antagonistic. And I went in one day and the little dog, Gertie, he let me in to go see her. And she had all of this goop. She had terrible mange. She had all this goop all over her head and little remnants of goop around her body and terrible diarrhea. And I said to the young man, I said, what's all over her head? And he said, well, I told my dad about her. And my dad said the best thing for skin is bacon grease. So I put bacon grease on her on her body. Well, what she had done was every place her tongue could get, she licked off all the bacon grease, which gave her a terrible upset stomach and just left a little goop on top of her head uh, where she couldn't lick. But that was an example of somebody in a care facility. And this was a, a long time ago in a care facility um, that wasn't allowed to treat the dogs because of what they look like, but was doing the best he could secretly on his own. So, and he wasn't a bad guy. He just didn't have access to the right information. There are people who do this work who are incredibly compassionate people who just wouldn't meet situations like that with compassion. And it's unfortunate. And I think it goes back to this, you know, you're not worthy mentality. And if our goal is to help animals and the people who own them, we have to stop being so judgmental. Uh, and I can't blame someone for not reaching out to someone. And I can't blame someone who doesn't want to reach out to someone when they may have done so before and they were so incredibly judged as a pet owner. Right. Or maybe it's a lifetime of experiences and just not, not even just experiencing um, discrimination in a shelter or trying to acquire a pet. Maybe it's a lifetime of the same experience in all kinds of service industries. Each time we deny an adopter because we think they're not from the best neighborhood, one of they're not from one of the neighborhoods we want them to be from, what we're doing is driving somebody to get a pet that's not altered yet, that isn't vaccinated yet. We're losing an opportunity to make a relationship with somebody who is crying out for a relationship. And that's what gets me every single time is when we find it. It's, you know, I can tell you, I don't even know how many stories from um, experiences of volunteering and working in shelters. And I'll tell you one here uh, locally with our shelter. We were doing some work there and we're really working on the adoption um, staff. And I know we keep calling them counselors, adoption counselors for the life of me. I don't know why we call them counselors. What exactly are we counseling? We are helping them make a match, helping them choose a pet, but that's not exactly counseling. But anyway, that's another podcast, right? So uh, we were working with the adoption staff to be open about everybody who walks in the door, make zero assumptions about that person. And once you start collecting information, then you start formulating who the best match is going to be. Well, a, a man walked in, a black man, and um, he filled out a survey. He walked through, like, we don't do applications either because an application seems a lot like approved or denied, like the bank stamps yes or no on it. We do surveys because so, we just ask questions. We want a little more information so we can help you pick the right pet. And um, this, this gentleman came in and he filled out his survey. And um, one of the things that this agency did was they would run every address for previous animal control calls, not necessarily citations, just even calls 
the adoption uh, staff called me over and they're like, Stacy, this guy has had an animal control call to his address. And I said, oh, well, did you ask him what it was about? And they said, no, no, no. How, how could we possibly ask him? So I turned around and I said, Mr. So-and-so, I said, hey, we have a call that shows up that we came to your address and like three years ago. Do you know why anybody would have called animal control to come to your address during that time? And he was like, huh, no, I've only lived there for two years. So I don't know who that was. And so I look at the adoption staff and I was like, okay, send them a dog home. But still the adoption staff was super nervous because this was one, this was, this was learning for them. And this was a, a zip code that they wouldn't normally adopt to because they were still work, working off old and bad habits. And I said, how about this? One of you get in your car, take the dog with you, do a home delivery, help introduce the dog to the kitten that lives at home, make sure everything feels good. And then you just leave the dog there. And they're like, oh no, we don't go to that zip code either. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll put the dog in my car. I'll drive to the guy's house and help him introduce to the kitten and uh, make sure everything feels good. And I got to tell you, when I got to the guy's house, he already had everything set up for the dog. The food was out, the water was out. He had a little cage set up so that when the kitten came out, then he could introduce, slow introduce the kitten to the dog. But the kitten came in typical kitten fashion, tearing around the corner, did a Kramer slide into the living room, wearing a little green and red bow tie with a bell in the middle. And it was the most ridiculous thing. It caught the dog completely off guard. The dog ran and hid. It was the best experience. I laughed so hard. The guy laughed so hard. I said, here's the leash. Enjoy your dog. And um, he had such a great experience that he would come in uh, every few weeks with his dog just to visit because he figured we missed her because he loved him. So he loved the dog so much. He figured we loved her too. So we'd want to see her. But that's an example of shelter adoption staff learning to let go of those old things that informed their habit because this guy really wanted a dog. His other dog had, had just passed away and he was lonely and he was going to get a pet somewhere. But since he came to us at the shelter, now he got a pet that was already altered. So he didn't have to spend his money on that. The dog was already vaccinated. We knew the dog didn't have heartworm. We knew the dog didn't have any sort of parasites and he's got a connection with people he trusts. So when something does go wrong, he comes back to people who can help them. We're making this all sound very easy, Stacy. right? We just qualify adopters. We don't disqualify regardless of anything. Great. We're done. Podcast over. But it's not that easy, is it, right? So on the podcast, people have probably heard me say this before. I do not want to do hands-on rescue work. I don't like it. I'm not good at it. The highs and the lows of the work, just not for me. And I say that because I want to recognize the people who do do it every day and to check myself of doing my own judging of people in the field that are making decisions, you know, seeing some of the worst of humanity, the worst. And I don't think it's crazy that there's, you know, you can become jaded. Right. And I did, I get that. So just as um, all of the people come through our front doors at the shelters are individuals and all the people who have to unfortunately come to the back door of the shelter to relinquish a pet are individuals, so are the people who work there. And I am glad to see so much discussion within companion animal sheltering about what it is we need to do to make sure that we're inclusive. A diverse staff is different and important, just as important as having non-discriminatory policies at the front end 
our organizations too. So what the adopters experience. So I think there are two things that we need to continue working on, and that is our policies, inclusive, accessible, and non-discriminatory. Are we sure that we are not excluding potential adopters for all the wrong reasons or out of habit? And we also, like you said, we need to make sure that we find the compassion for the folks who do work in shelters. But to the folks that I have come in contact with when I've been working with shelters is and it's funny, the woman I work for was doing this for me today, too, because, you know, we all have hard days. We all have hard days. We have to count the good things that happen because they always outweigh the bad. And all of the work we do, the good things, so people get so much joy and happiness, regardless of zip code, regardless of income, regardless of color of skin, regardless of any of it. We get so much happiness and joy from animals in our lives that it far outweighs the sad things that we've seen. And I can say that because I've experienced a lot of really horrible things in doing you know, first responder work for animal welfare and working with some large scale cruelty cases. You see some pretty rotten things and you learn things about people that you wish you didn't know, but uh, we have to remind each other that there's far more good than bad. And it's always worth it to take a risk because it almost overwhelmingly turns out positive. Stacy, I want to thank you and tell you how much I appreciate the work that you do, Animal Farm Foundation. And just as you're constantly looking at the mission as a movement, I think we have to keep asking ourselves, are we doing the best we can for the animals and for the people who love them? And if we're not, we have to evolve. And to, to end today, you know, I, I think kindness, it's just the core of the DNA at Best Friends. And as we talk about these types of issues, kindness, trust, it's really important. We have to lose those judgments. And uh, listen, real talk, I was bullied all the way through my school years, all the way. And I think a lot of us in this work have childhoods that have impacted our views on the world. And um, animals were always there unconditionally for us, even when we saw and felt how cruel people can be. So. Um, you know, as difficult as it can be, we have to find a way to let it go. Yeah. I, I, I keep a sign by my door to remind me that says, if you can be anything, be kind. And um, I think that a lot of people work with animals in order to be kind or to feel kind, but they're not particularly kind to each other. And they're not kind to other people they don't know. They're probably always kind to animals. but in companion animal welfare, there is always a companion. There's always a companion. And I realized that we have to, and this is one of the things I talk with our staff about, and, and it's so in, in um, it's just part of who we are now, so we don't really have to talk about it anymore internally, but we can't adopt all of the animals ourselves. So we have to trust other people. We have to, or there's no point in doing what we do. If we don't trust people as a whole, to be good to the animals we're taking care of, then we're doomed because we can't possibly adopt all of the animals. So we have to trust our fellow human beings that they're going to do the right thing. And I choose to. I choose to, I choose to lead with trust. Again, a big thank you to Stacy for taking the time. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. How do you approach these issues in your work? Do you have clear lines that delineate who you adopt to? Maybe there have been situations in your career that have changed your views. Email podcast at bestfriends.org. 
Thank you to the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.